not so. So this morning, following our devotions, we'll turn to the meditative cultivation of compassion, the second of the four measurables. In Buddhist just terminology, a way of speaking, at least I've never seen any reference to feeling compassion for oneself. It's just that the phrasing doesn't come up. Not that it's in any way antithetical uh, to the spirit of the teachings of Buddhism, it's just that phrase doesn't come up. But I think it needs to come up for our world, where we know that people in modernity, and again I find this to be quite global at this point, can be quite harsh with themselves or towards themselves, the whole issue of low self-esteem with which we're all very familiar. But then this raises the issue, what is compassion? Because if it's simply pity, and that is pity in the sense that the pity, the term has meant different things in different times. But nowadays we know it has kind of a negative connotation. Like if a person says, don't pity me, and they say that with a lot of anger, don't pity me, probably has an element of condescension to it. Right, condescension, uh, or what a pity, what a pity. That's maybe just sympathy at best. If you say, oh, what a pity, you know, you hear about the latest bombing and this, this, and this. Oh, what a shame, what a pity, what a pity. Well, a little bit of mediocre, kind of not very powerful empathy coming up, but it's not compassion, right? And so, and also the whole notion of self-pity. We all know what that is. <laughs> You, you never say, "Oh, you're so getting so good at self-pity." You know, keep keep it going. That's really that's something to be cultivated. You know, just so we know. You know, we know all of the native English speakers and anybody. I think everybody here is quite fluent. We know the feel of these terms. But then we need to come back to the Buddhist context, since we are following a Buddhist path here. And compassion is not an emotion. It is not an emotion. It is not simply sympathy. It is something more. And of course, as you well know, it's an aspiration, an aspiration. But once again, to hammer in this nail even deeper, to have an aspiration, and if it's to have any kind of durability, any robustness, longevity to it, there has to be a sense that the aspiration could be fulfilled at some time, that there is hope, that there is hope. So we're just, at least I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend any time aspiring for something, yearning for something, that I am persuaded is impossible. Even if it is, is, even if it is possible, if I'm persuaded it's impossible, I'm not going to aspire for it. Life is too short for that, right? And so let's just linger very briefly here on self-directed compassion. I will say this is perfectly legitimate. Uh, Shantideva himself says that if you don't reflect upon the benefits of bodhicitta for yourself, why would you ever reflect upon the benefits or want to de develop it for anybody else? Well, but it, it is very much about compassion, rooted in compassion. So that's quite clear. I think that needs no big argument to be in favor of this. But now, it, as I was meditating this morning, it just it comes up, you know, comes up. And this is what came up. And that is that it's very easy for us, maybe even especially in modernity, but we have no monopoly on this. We're not unique. I think it's very easy for us to identify with our defects, our limitations, our problems, our mental afflictions, our physical challenges, illnesses, defects, injuries, and so forth. I think it's very easy. I think we do it a lot. So our very sense of identity becomes embedded in, like fused with, uh, 
if one has problems in the body. Maybe one was born with them, a deformity, or a big nose, or being just naturally chubby. I mean, genetically, you're going to get a, you're going to be a chubby person. You know, that's the way it is. Some people can be, they're going to always be dealing with chubbiness. You know, as if this is something really bad. Um, so whether it's something one's born with, whether it's an injury that then lingers with you for the rest of your life, whether it's an illness that you cannot kick, or just things wearing out, like you know, you get older, knees and just chronic things, the ailments of getting older. It's very easy to identify with them, and that's just in terms of the body. It's very easy to identify with one's social position, especially in very hierarchical societies like Great Britain, still just to a large extent, but previously much more, and India with its caste system and so forth. It's very easy to identify with one's place in society, feeling that's a ceiling, I can't go beyond that, right? But then, of course, as we go more inwardly, so we have outer, inner, and secret, really. Outer, you're, you know, what's your, are you, are you from a family of good breeding? <laughs> you know, that. Are you of a certain class? Are you, you know, are you, or your level of affluence, your level of education? Are you from a good family or from one of those families? What part, what, what's your accent in England? I think this is still something of an issue. What's your accent? Still something of an issue, isn't it? Not as much, not as much, she says. <laughs> not, not as much, at least we don't notice it. <laughs> but of course, those who don't talk like me, I'm not quite sure about them. They're quite questionable, you see. <laughs> so there's the outer, there's the inner, the body. Identifying with the body for better or for worse, you know, till death do us part. And then identifying with the internal, you know. One's traits, level of mental afflictions, and so forth, very easy to identify. And all of that is an obstacle. Every bit of it is an obstacle. The outer, the inner, the secret. The secret just being your mind, you know, and what's going on in the mind. Every bit of it is an obstacle. Every bit of it is a closed door on the path of Mahamudra and Dzogchen every single bit, right? And so the aspiration to be free, the aspiration to be free, may I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. In Buddhism, that's not called compassion because the term self-compassion, at least I've not ever seen it come up. And I've read a fair number of books, but the term renunciation does. Except for it's not renunciation. The Tibetan is korwa lenge parajungwa. It's a spirit of definitely an attitude, a perspective, a yearning, an aspiration of definitely emerging from samsara. Which means to definitely emerge not from a place, of course, but to definitely emerge from the status of being a sentient being, which is a status of being afflicted physically, mentally, and socially, and so forth and so on. It's a yearning for freedom. That is self-directed compassion. So they don't have that term, self-directed compassion. They have a term of the yearning to definitely emerge from suffering and the causes of suffering. We call it, so it's often translated as renunciation, which is okay, but it's not very literal. But now just a final point before we go to the meditation. And that is, is there hope? Is there hope? I think it all depends on your worldview. When it comes to illnesses. We know that they are incurable only when you're dead. 
because strange stuff happens. You know, they, they just, the medical profession just keeps on, and it was society, just time and again gets surprised. Somebody goes to John of God, somebody goes here, somebody, somebody, and just then weird stuff happens. You know, and then suddenly that which was certain to be certainly going to be a terminal disease or irreversible or no, we can't cure it. Modern, modern medicine has no way. And then on some occasions, except when there's an exception. You know? So you know it's incurable only when you're dead. Now one could think death is incurable, but even that's not necessarily so. Like there's a case of Chakdurambuchi's, what was his mother? Mother, wasn't it? Grandmother? Grandmother, I think. Delo. Delo, there's, there's, a term, there's a book in English called Delo, and it's her story, right? Mother, wasn't it? I think his mother, yeah, Chakdurambuchi's mother. She was dead for days. <laughs> and then she came back and reported in detail about her experience of the six realms of existence. She checked them all out. She had this free Ural pass for all of the six realms. He checked out the hell realms, the praetors, and so forth. I think she went to the Pure Lands too, didn't she? Don't you remember, yeah? So she had a nice grand tour, and then she came back and reported. So she was dead, and then thought, uh, then decided otherwise. But she was, <laughs> but the body was just kind of like gone. I mean, like comatose, like, you know, just finished. And then she came back. So even that, who knows? Certainly in, in modern medicine. Now, now here we just talk about really good medicine. You know, people who are dead two or three minutes, brain is flatlined, no heartbeat, and so forth. And then they're brought back, you know. After cardiac arrest is one of the most common things. So the point here being, and, I'll and then we will go to the meditation, is there hope or not? From what ails us, and this can be physical problems, it can be our social environment, the setting where we find ourselves, the outer, the inner, and the secret, the innermost, the mind. And I will say unequivocally yes to all of it, to all of it. There's freedom from all of it, and it doesn't matter who you are. There is a possibility of freedom. It doesn't matter who you are. What your illness is, what your ailment, your affliction, your mental affliction, your past negative karma, and so forth, there is absolutely certain, I would say, with strong conviction, I'll bait you. <laughs> yes, there's definitely a possibility. In this lifetime, even, there's possibility. In this lifetime. Does this mean that all illnesses can be cured, all, all, all on the hedonic level, manifest level? I don't know. That I don't know. But if you stop identifying with it, you're free of it. If you start up, stop identifying with it, you stop reifying it, then you're free of it. So tell me how free are you if you're in a lucid dream and you're slam dunk lucid, you are radiantly, luminously, 360 degrees, thoroughly, lucid, and the person that you are in the dream has terminal cancer. How big a problem is that? He has bone cancer. You've just been hit by a truck. You've just been shot. You've just been eviscerated with a great big, you know, crocodile dundee knife. How big a deal is that if you're really lucid? If you're being tortured to death, if you're lucid? How big a deal is that? If you're crippled, you're insane, if you're lucid and you're recognizing that persona of you in the dream is completely bonkers, crazy, how big a deal is that? In other words, if you're lucid, it doesn't matter. It's even. 
You're the richest person, you're the poorest person, the healthiest person, the, the most ill person, the ugliest person, the most beautiful person, and so forth and so on. It's even. You're lucid. No preference. No preference, because you're lucid. And insofar as you're not lucid, oh, you're in trouble. Let's call samsara. So in that regard, I'm choosing my words very carefully, but with a lot of conviction, become lucid, and you can become free of everything without exception. That fast. Right? You're not identifying with any of it. You're not reifying any of it. It is mere appearances to you, but you are free. Now, hedonically, in terms of appearances, might appearances change? You have an illness, might it be cured? You're in poverty, might you get out of poverty? And so forth and so on. Can't tell. Sometimes, you know, really wonderful things happen. Could happen. Not sure. It's possible. But the other one's certain. Certainly possible. And so as we are cultivating compassion for ourselves, then focus on the certainty. What is certainly possible, definitely possible, definitely within reach. And the depth of our compassion will be directly correlated to the depth of our understanding of suffering and its sources. That's true. So for those of you who studied Buddhism a bit, you know about blatant suffering, suffering in your face, suffering that every type of sentient being recognizes, knows, and wants to be free of. If that's your whole understanding of suffering, then your compassion is going to be as episodic as that type of suffering. It comes and goes. Right? If you have a deeper insight into suffering, the suffering of change, which out on the outer veneer looks just wonderful. You're, everything's going great. And it's going great as you have the tentacles of attachment firmly embedded in your soap bubble. That's the time for compassion if you have deep enough insight, let alone the deepest one, existential suffering, let alone that. So, without further ado, let's direct compassion inwardly from this vantage point, from this vantage point of our own pristine awareness. So. Namo lama deshe dupeku kunjo sungi ranjinla datando tu senjena chanju badu kapsuchi Namo in the lama who is the embodiment of the sugatas of the nature of the three jewels I, together with the beings of the six realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Semgendo kundundu lama sangye dupneni 
Kan la kandu tin leki doa doa dam For the sake of all beings, I generate the spirit of awakening and cultivate the realization of the Lama as Buddha. By means of enlightened activity, I shall train each being according to their needs, and I vow to liberate the world. Chamsam Pema Gesa Dombola Yamsen Choki Mudunye Pema June Shesuta Kodu Kando Mamberko Kiki Jesu Datuki Jinge Lapchi Shexu Guru Pema Sidi Hum In the northwest frontier of Odiana, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the supreme, the supreme city, and is surrounded by a host of Dakinis. Following in your footsteps, I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Pema Siddhi Hum.
if you'd like to switch postures, please do so now. As your first act of compassion, wishing yourself to be free of suffering and its causes, let your awareness descend from this nest of conceptual elaborations, descend into the quiet space of the body, right down to the ground. leaving all your mental cares behind. And settle your body in a posture of ease, of stillness and vigilance, softening all the muscles of the face, softening the eyes. Suffer your breathing in its natural rhythm, your awareness in its natural uncontrived state of stillness, of ease, of natural clarity.
And like living in a lighthouse on an island within stormy stormy seas, where the wind howls, the waves are great, rest in this lighthouse, abide in stillness in the lighthouse of your own awareness with its natural luminosity, symbolized as this orb of radiant, luminous light at your heart, symbolizing your Buddha nature. And from this perspective, bring to mind what ails you, what brings you down. Individually, the sources of your suffering, the types of suffering to which you are vulnerable, bring them to mind. Do a full diagnostic. What's the range of suffering to which you are vulnerable? And what are the underlying causes? On all levels, And especially bring to mind what presses in upon you on the basis of your fundamental identity of being a sentient being, a human being. What presses in upon you as a source of suffering? Something that brings you down. And then make manifest an aspiration that's already there. Nothing contrived, nothing freshly fabricated. Your eternal longing, the wish to be free. But to arouse this aspiration in a genuine way, a durable way, There must be hope, there must be some vision of freedom, something to aspire to and not simply aspire to be away from. And that freedom is symbolized right there in your heart. That is your freedom. It is primordial freedom, forever free. And it's already there.
From the Mahamudra and Dzogchen perspective, this is not simply a, poten a potential that may or may not actualize at some time in the future. It is reality here and now, simply veiled by ignorance and delusion, by the reification of ourselves as being sentient beings. As you have done before, visualize your body devoid of materiality, nothing substantially real. Again, a holographic image is very close. Having causal efficacy, influenced and influencing, but empty, an array of empty appearances, translucent in this pure form shimmering, glowing, with no obscurations from outside or inside, illuminated from within by this orb of pristine awareness at your heart. With every in-breath, arouse this yearning, this aspiration for your own freedom from all that ails you, from the most superficial right down to the core. Imagine being totally free and bringing to mind all that ails you, physically, in terms of your environment, relationships with other people, your body and your mind. Imagine all this darkness. With each in-breath, draw it in, like a cloud enveloping you. Draw it in. With each in-breath, draw it into the orb of light at your heart and dissolve it there without trace. With each in-breath, may I be free. May I be free.
like waking up from a long and fretful dream with many ups and downs and more ups and downs. Like waking up from a dream. Imagine here and now being totally free of all suffering and causes of suffering, of all obscurations, outer, inner, and secret. Imagine being free, totally. Then release all imaginings, release all aspirations, all hopes and fears. Release all grasping. And simply be free, resting in awareness. That is naturally pure.
Corona, so. So for most of us here in our Araluen pod, we're still spending more time off the cushion than on, I think, mostly. Which means that the primary focus of the practice should be off the cushion rather than on the cushion, right? I mean, give it where the, the biggest field is. Not in any way to diminish, of course, the importance of our formal sittings, but it, to draw, to gain the maximum benefit from this time here. Of course, we really need to be focusing on how to elevate the quality of awareness throughout the entire day, and not just on the cushion. And so in this regard, really now it's very timely to think about those three uncommon preliminaries, right? From the perspective, so we, do, so we avoid any sense of idolatry or idolizing of the guru and so on, from this perspective that we've just been cultivating right out of Guru Yoga, of this, now you don't need to reiterate what we were just doing, as much as that, sustaining that flow. As, again, to remind you, as, as Atisha said, between sessions, act as if you were an illusory being, as if you were an apparition, a holographic display, just like a ghost. You know, act as if, imagine yourself just insubstantial, kind of floating lightly with this, what do they call it, the unbearable lightness of being. <laughs> and attend to yourself, attending to the guru, attending to your fellow siblings, dharma siblings, and all sentient beings. That's where the real power of the practice is. That's what the great masters say. The power is in the preliminaries. You know, so there we are. So enjoy your day. See you later.